Yesterday was, I guess, the day after Julian calendar Christmas, so-called old calendar, which yeah. is still the calendar kept in Bethlehem. So that's where they're celebrating Christmas. And I happened to to be at the Star Market here, and the guy behind the fish counter was chatting with me. It was very mm-hmm. friendly. I said, where are you from? He said, where are you from? I said, well, my dad's from Greece. He said, I'm from there 7,000 years ago. Oh. What an answer, huh? Yeah. I'm from there 7,000 years ago. I said, whoa. That's not something you would expect to hear. So that's- You're fishmonger. That's an old word. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so um, tell me all about that. And he said, well, we're Palestinian. Mm-hmm. And was it Samson slew the Philistines? It's the mm-hmm. same word, the F and the PH. He says, but we're a Minoan civilization from Crete. Mm-hmm. Which I think is older than Greek civilization. I mean, it's, it's not Greek. The, the Indo-European peoples all came from the north shores of the Caucasus, Black Sea area, kind of Ukraine, Russia. Mm. Then the Greeks came through Hungary, and then they, they came down in different waves. And each wave spoke a different dialect and settled in different parts of Greece. And they, and they learned from what was left of Minoan life and civilization, but that locked them into a conversation with you know, the, the really old civilizations in the, in the, the Middle East. But yeah, it was incredible that in that part of the world, somebody wants to locate their identity 7,000 years ago. Mm, That they would even think that way. That's true. And I've sort of learned to think that way. But I Mm. I think Greeks think that they do that. But I think compared to the actual Middle East, like Syria, the persistence of subcultures is much deeper. And what about Chinese, by the way? I've heard that until recently. Even in one city, there could be three or four spoken dialects of Chinese, even though the written language is the same. I am probably not a, the best person to answer. From my understanding, there can be multiple spoken dialects in different cities. And each city has its own thing. And the written is either the simplified or traditional characters. There's a concept called legibility that I've been learning about recently. There's a book called Seeing Like a State. And the concept is viewing culture, society from the state, the government point of view, and how that causes them to create policies or just act in a way that is in their interest so that it's easier to see things from a big picture, but might not be always good. It's just one view of how society works. And so one one of the examples, I think I was talking about the forestry industry, getting wood from the trees in the regular forests, there's like a diversity of different tree types, plants, animals, and the whole ecosystem. And you get the wood from that. But then from an engineering point of view, because it made it efficient to get the wood. Oh, what if we started planting trees in a grid or something? This is similar to the high modernist view of cities, but it was not very resilient because some disease happened and all the trees, because they're the same type of tree, they all died. It doesn't mean it has to be a machine. I've heard that about Turkey, Ataturk's the father of modern Turkey, that he aspired to create the first truly modern state in the world, by which my professor meant that there'd, there'd be no fractal quality to society. There, there would just be the individual and the state. Yeah, no middle layers. And so, of course, the big act there was to abolish the use of an Arabic-style script for the writing of Turkish, because that meant with a stroke of an act of the parliament, all subsequent Turks could not read anything of their own historical inheritance. Hmm. Even to this day, when I'm in Turkey with my students and we have a 
local Turkish god, although he's an Orthodox Christian. When we're in ancient cemeteries, simple Turks from the hinterlands will come to him plaintively and say, can you help us read what's on these tombstones? Because it's all in the Arabic script and no one has learned to read that. It's interesting this people are so worried about you know the loss of biodiversity and, mm-hmm. and you know ecosystems and they say what cures to cancer may we lose or with the loss of species or right. whatever medicines but languages are vanishing yeah so yeah, yeah. And I, don't, I don't know if we talked about that last time yeah they don't understand why things exist in a certain way and so they decide to kind of destroy once those people are gone and they didn't pass that down, then we're never going to be able to understand it. It'd be very difficult. Their thought worlds will become, it's like, I I experience the shift. If I'm trying to speak modern Greek, Mm -hmm. what that brings out in my personality and Mm -hmm. character versus if I'm speaking Russian or German or English. And as I go through those languages, the different side of me that comes out, I mean, that's just four languages, but there used to be say 25,000 languages in the world and we're down to 10,000. So, what, have, what are we losing? Where's the urgency about recording those or somehow capturing? Going back to this thing of legacy, right? Yeah, like the seed bank up in Norway or something. Like the, the Lake Toba eruptions in 75,000 years ago when mm-hmm. they say produced this 1,000 years of global cooling and almost exterminated Homo sapiens down to like 1,000 of us mm-hmm. in Africa and they broke into two groups, didn't know about each other and all that. But just even from that point till now, mm-hmm. It took us seventy five thousand years, since, you know, to develop those twenty thousand languages. Mm. And they're going to be wiped out. And, and, and Marx was very wise on this. He, mm. he foresaw this would be this extirpation of human cultural diversity. In tech, you focus on the future, not really caring about preserving the past. A new interest in open source and maintenance as a concept is related to this idea of archival, and in this case, trying to preserve it forever, not just like keep it around but how do we make sure that we can continue to have access to it i mean i really think about that because we're always trying to push to the next thing and i know there's different kinds of emotional anxiety but at least in, on some metric canada is a less anxious society than the united states mm-hmm. there instead of the melting pot their metaphor is mosaic government resources are available if your church is a German Lutheran church and you want to establish a German book library, there's federal resources for that. They want to keep oh, okay. the mosaic alive. And then the melody is basically we're all kind of one. I can't thing. trust anyone who's different. I've got to obliterate the difference and then we're good. Assimilation to this ideal, but we don't really know what that is. I would hope that's true in the church. Like we all preserve our individualism, but then we all have that shared something, right? <laughs> but Right. I mean, that's the miracle of Pentecost. You know, the, mm. in, in Babel, all those languages was confusion. But in Pentecost, so many languages, but somehow. Oh, yeah. Everyone understood in their own language. Right. Yeah. Somehow the diversity was coincided with unity. Whereas mm. in, in a fallen world, like in the world of the state, like you mm. said, the, the legibility, diversity is the threat to unity. It's funny that I work on a project that's named Babel, so it's ironic that we're doing this. But I also read that the legibility concept doesn't have to be applied to a state. It could be applied to a market or anything. Another concept that I've liked is Chesterton's fence. So Chesterton wrote about this idea that you could um, apply it to any tradition or just 
something that was already there, like the fence. It's kind of like you're trying to go forward and you see there's a fence in your way. You just go through it, right? Why is this fence here? And so his point is that when you want to reform something, institution or culture, instead of simply getting rid of it, you should understand why it was put there in the first place before you get rid of it. That way, I know why this was there and I still choose to remove it because I've understood the original intent, realizing it was there for some purpose. And maybe the negative would be that it was actually really good and you actually caused more harm than good. Maybe you could have gotten rid of the fence without knowing and it turned out okay, but it's kind of out of ignorance, right? Yeah. So I guess this concept is more of like an act of humility that like I might not be right. Maybe you need to be careful about it before I decide to change something. Cautiousness. Facebook actually used to have this phrase called move fast and break things. It's interesting that we've embraced that kind of thinking. Creative destruction. Maybe it's something we've embraced because of the digital space that we're in. There are no limits. Unlike physical constraint, right? You can store as much as you want, infinite disk space. That causes us to feel like we need to move faster or or imply that to people instead of just machines. Well, you know, Jane Jacobs, by the last 20 years of her life, she hit upon this ancient idea that all societies were tripartite and that there were three sort of modes of being in in any society that actually had ethics were opposed or Hmm. complementary. For commercial life, for trader ethic, you know, you should be innovative. You should not respect authority or tradition. Uh, But she thought that governments should have this countervailing impact and certainly then the church is something else entirely Mm. where hopefully religion can be enlisted almost anywhere as a force for compassion certainly that isn't necessarily the case it doesn't have to be the case we would like it to be the case wait a second here let's preserve this subculture or this language let's not be so hasty but we've created a system with no firewalls and their integrity is, is being overwhelmed i think I mean, of the fence against pornography, for example, right? Very hard to maintain because there's so much desire for it and mm-hmm. there's so much money at stake. But having obliterated that fence, what's the impact on family formation and just mental health? I guess there could be a fence that it's really hard to take down that a lot of people want to. And then also no one even realized there was a fence before because it's been so long. What's the, so yeah, these things are gone now. And in what sense are we better off? You know, it's it's hard to say. I used to, it's easy to see things always black and white, but even the changes that have occurred in society, there's always finding that reason. Not that it's everything is always all good or all bad, but trying to present a positive uh, approach forward. Because we can't really go back to the past, right? Like technology. Even though a lot of us are realizing kind of the downsides of it, it doesn't mean we should like get rid of it entirely. In some sense, we can't. It's all there in the infrastructure, in our minds, right. in our habits, and how we use it in daily life. Do we need to help people develop better uh, self-control, discipline, virtue, that thing? Or do we create technology to help us not use technology? Maybe we need all those approaches. Traditionally, you know, Christians have had, whether they were Calvinists or mm-hmm. certainly Roman Catholics or Orthodox Christians, to go back, Lutherans, they had, whether or not they used the word asceticism, everyone knew that you had to train yourself in self-denial or self-restraint. You would just 
shipwreck if you didn't? Like, where is that training to come from? It is very difficult now because there's the aspect of do what you want to do, which is good, the freedom to choose. But then that has its own anxiety. There's so many choices. You don't know what to do and then you don't do anything. You get paralyzed. Maybe it's just hard to think about what self-improvement means in this modern life. Or repentance. But certainly parents and educators, we're not looking at these things in the abstract. We just know that if they cannot discipline themselves, then they will just they'll crack up. But I think it's like for modern day, we need to understand the outlets for that now to be able to... Outlets for, for self-discipline? Or not, I guess, where it's not showing up. It's hard for parents to understand what's going on because they're not immersed in what our kids doing in the day-to-day. Easy example would be maybe video games. Why are these kids wasting their time doing this thing? They didn't grow up with it. It's like, why are they turning to this? How do we explain that there are there's reasons for why that's happening, positive and negative, and then using that to move forward? So part of it might be you create other games that help you with these types of things. Or learning to have self-control. I guess it's difficult to relate between generations. How do we connect? Reading this Edwin Friedman, mm-hmm. A Failure of Nerve. He says what we're addicted to, you know, what we're hiding behind so we don't confront ourselves is data and information. We want more information to make the decision for us. That's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot too. But it really doesn't. You know? We see this in this internet age. We have these recommendation systems from all the companies. Netflix, like every movie we watch, it helps the algorithm tell us what to watch next. It's like, are we even making the decision at that point? That's kind of pleasurability too. It's like, they only know what movies we watch. That doesn't mean they know us. Does that represent who we are? Over time, everything is just a recommendation. They were doing that before, but now it's what we feel like is some extreme. So they're not even showing me the movies that I might be interested in because the, the algorithm, Netflix is junk. It's, it's funny though, how I will find surprising things. Like I this turn about spies in the American War of Revolution. That wasn't recommended to me, but there it was, and I I just couldn't stop. It was great. And then I just binge-watched recently Cheer about this community college 10-time national champion Mm. um, collegiate cheering squad. The the legibility obstacle there is I would have to not only watch that, mm-hmm. but sort of explain what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. To me, it's a drama about kids, families <clears throat> of origins, and it's a story about discipline. It's a story about leadership. But someone else might think there's yeah. an interest in cheerleading or something. But that's yeah. not why you wanted to watch it. We have our own vocabularies. And like machine learning is interesting because that is a black box. The engineers that work on the algorithm... They might even say, like, I don't want to be responsible for what happens. They can kind of just be like, well, it's the data and it's correct. But now I think people are arguing now that the people that make the algorithm have their own bias. We're all biased in some way. It's all the way down. I don't know if you can pretend this thing is objective. This is the right way. Like what you're saying, that we want more data, right? Because it feels like then we can make a better decision. Now, in order to buy something, you need to be sure it's a good one. It could be something as simple as like a, a pencil or a toothbrush. And it's like, it doesn't even matter if it was expensive or not. You don't need a smart toothbrush, right? Everything is like, you need to spend like a whole day on, right? Do all your research. I'm going to be informed. I mean, that's true. But is it a bad thing? Maybe that will drive the evolution of better toothbrushes or something. Yeah, but I think that it's not bad to spend time thinking about these things. But 
I think that when it leads to the anxiety of making sure that I did the right thing, I think that's what I'm concerned about. Now you're worrying about it. It becomes part of your identity. Maybe I need to show people that I'm smart and I can buy the right things or for myself to just be like, I spent my time wisely. I think that when it becomes very emotional, almost existential. And that seems kind of absurd, but I feel like that happens to us a lot. No, that, that seems not absurd at all. That seems exactly right. It not only prolongs adolescence, but it, it almost returns you to it after you've left it. You go back to this state where the whole world is new. There's mm-hmm. new and things to explore and discover. Everything's open and indeterminate again. And it seems like maturation is about a progression to determinacy and then final mm-hmm. determinacy of death. Like <laughs> people will be watching a great show with their last eyes are on their deathbed. They'll be like, Oh, I, I wish I could live another 15 minutes mm-hmm. to see how it ends. I mean, yeah. they're looking for all their novelty through these channels. And it seems like the content creators are getting better at delivering it. And I think once we get to a real, you know, virtual reality mm-hmm. experience where I can not only study about the Himalayas, but I can yeah, smell yeah. and feel the cold oh. and, mm-hmm. and it's told in some compelling way. I mean, mm-hmm. people will just refuse to die. They'll just think this is <laughs> too great. Whereas a hundred years ago, I mean, eventually you get bored. You've sort of seen it all. You've done it all. And it's just like, okay. Oh, that's interesting. People are bored all the time now, still. So you think that there is literally an infinite amount of things to see or even just learn, right? And yet people don't know what to do. My friend was reading a book that's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Yeah. And it was mentioning 1984 and Brave New World and how both of those things happened where we have this influx of information and not knowing what truth is because everyone is broadcasting everything. There's abundance of data and a lack due to the censorship. By the way, those two books, a student of mine pointed out that they illustrate Jane Jacobs' understanding of a tripartite society very well. One is a dystopia where society becomes nothing but guardian control and the state is everywhere. Uh Uh-huh. And then Brave New World is a, the opposite dystopia where pleasure and self-gratification has absorbed everything. There is no state in a way. There's even room for research in, in Brave New World. You can sort of move to Iceland or something if you want to think freely. Hmm. But everyone else is slave to the pleasure. What was the um, tripartite? What were the three parts? So the two basic parts that she noticed are what she calls the trader syndrome, you know, the commercial syndrome of innovation and in a world that's not, decisions are made consensually. And then the other is the guardian world where it is a realm of force and hierarchy and tradition and authority. Mm-hmm. And Solzhenitsyn, in his Harvard address in 1978, he had a similar idea. He thought that medieval Roman Catholic civilization had become excessively guardianized. And that mm. since, since before the Reformation, we'd gone to the other extreme of anything that's consensual is moral, whereas the guardian view of morality is, no, it's the law. Jacobs thought that you need, in some form, these two realms, these two syndromes, the definition of civilization is just a reasonable kind of symbiosis of these two worlds, mm. functioning government, a functioning commercial sector that was not starving to death. She thought they could only be reconciled under the influence of love. 
the third force. She used words like art, gift, or creativity for that. Essentially, what I did with her work is say, mm. it's a vision of society as if it were a wedding liturgy. Mm. And that's why I did my dissertation about uh, Greek Orthodox Christian Holy Week, because the whole week is cast as an encounter between the bridegroom, Christ, and Jerusalem, which is a failed encounter. But then he marries the new Jerusalem through his death and, or the church or heaven. So certainly that idea of society as a wedding liturgy, the, the two parts getting married under the influence of the third, is seems to be more or less a human universal. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. All the Indian castes, except the untouchables, come down to some version of those three, the priests, the warriors, the, the different tradesmen, Japanese society. I, th- I think it's just existential. You cannot avoid it. It just is reality. When I wrote it, Jane Jacobs a letter about it, she said, yeah. well, if something's true, it should show up many places, <laughs> like in, in religion and myth. And I said, well, yeah, it is. And like, like you're saying, we seem to have sort of the worst of both worlds in some ways. We have the tax collector and the harlot. Because I think in gospel terms, mm-hmm. your fallen guardian is the tax collector and your fallen commerce person is the harlot. And, and, and a lot of technology is driven it's to, first of all, by the demands of porn. Porn needs this. It's a market mm-hmm. for porn. When so- Soviets collapsed, the first thing that you could buy was pornography. So there's, there's our fallen human nature. You mentioned aesthetics. Maybe we could talk about that. Actually, last time, I think we talked about like beauty and well, cultural engagement as a Christian and how to talk about our faith. And one way is through beauty, right? In this postmodern age, we've been trying to talk about faith as a like God story and that is more appealing or presentable. So what would a Christian apologetics of beauty look like? You know, I think it has to do too with asking different questions. I like that because we're always looking for the answer, right? And maybe that has to do with having so much data. I, I must have the answer. It's a compulsion. It's an addiction. It's maladaptive. Seeing knowledge a little bit differently. I keep talking about Michael Polanyi, but his work is around personal knowledge. One thing I liked was trying to see that knowledge in his view, always from the perspective of somebody, whether it's you or someone else, meaning it's always personal. And most of us would say that is a negative because subjectivity is bias. Like it might not be true because it's just your belief. He's just saying, how can you ever claim certainty? And that truth has to be kind of embodied and lived out through people. Uh, rather than this abstract. And then the more real it is, the more complicated it gets. If knowledge is just a bunch of pieces of like data in a list that you add on to, you might think that the more you learn, the less there is to know. Like it's kind of finite. You know something is true when you're able to kind of see all the possibilities that come out of that truth. More knowledge expands the universe. It only gets exponentially greater. You feel a sense of even humility. Maybe that pairs with this idea of asking more questions because once these possibilities come out you might feel overwhelmed to start asking these questions yes and in in the orthodox church they don't look at theologians as of particular importance to Mm. the doctrine of the church they think that it really comes down to the saints from abraham forward it really is because it is so personal Mm. we want to know what kind of person believed this it's not the smartest kid on the block integrity right yeah. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? That's who your theologian has to be. Imitate me, right? So it's not enough to just have it all in your head. 
And St. Paul said, imitate me as well. I mean, so there's a chain of imitation. But that doesn't mean you don't have also immediate access to God. Many I times mean, it's not so much that you learn from the tradition as that you have the immediate experience of God. And then tradition helps you either to interpret it or to filter it. It's canonical. Yeah, even though I usually think that like tradition is the thing that holds us back. But as in science and in any institution, it's actually the thing that makes us move forward. And going back to legacy, it's like, Without the past, we're just going to make the same mistakes over and over. It's like having a stable base allows people to kind of experiment. And maybe there's a sense of reformation. I think in reformation, they had that phrase like uh, semper referendum. It's like always reforming, right? That it doesn't mean that um, every single new thing that someone comes up with, we have to kind of you know figure it out and see it or just start over and like completely destroy the thing but the opposite would be you never change right but it's like you, you still change but like i don't think you could like and i guess go back and forth all the time right without like not even like what are you anymore right at that point I mean, luther's self-understanding was that you know he was trying to recover something that right. was lost mm-hmm. it wasn't inventing a new religion but he was trying to recover something that well from an orthodox christian mm-hmm. perspective we would say it really was l- being in danger of being lost. Mm-hmm. Well, we, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we certainly thought there was something going on over there mm-hmm. in the Latin church that was, you know, just become unmoored. Mm-hmm. But, you know, forgive me, Roman Catholic listeners. I think, I think for that, for tradition to mean something, there has to be a personal mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. that, that repentance is, is both a return and a prog- a progression mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that, okay, here I am at age, whatever I am now, mm-hmm. and and in repenting of my sins today or my sins this past year, that in a sense I'm recovering some purity I had a year ago. But I'm also now, you know, but now I'm also developing, I'm maturing, and I'm ready for the next adventure. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I don't, you know, so I think people need to have that existential experience that, right. Yeah, that repentance is somehow a path forward. That there's there's some development possible, you know. Yeah, like the sanctification, I guess. Sanctification. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, you know, and, and you develop wisdom, you develop better instincts in your spiritual life. You develop, you, know, you have experience, you know, that you didn't have. Yeah, I think it's a. I think it's a, like the marrying of theory and practice as one, right? And, and intuition and conscience, you know, a, a lot of things are getting purified and refined and, and, you know, you're, you're not, mm-hmm. you know, just the baby in the faith that you were, you're um, something more. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like what does maturity look like where it's, we're talking about like having, but, but also having childlike faith, but then being mature and not needing the, or the spiritual milk or whatever. So, yeah, because I, I don't know. I think about how when you get older, any in any sense of that word, you get jaded, right? So, like, I gave a talk here in Boston with some college students. It's like really great to talk to younger people just because they see the opportunities, right? They are motivated and like excited and just full of like wanting to learn and you could say that's like naive or something but like that's from the jaded point of view it's like i think it's important to kind of 
remember that because like after you just I don't know you work or you are in school for a long time and then everyone around you just doesn't want to do anything anymore not looking for what's next like where's where's yeah like where's your hope coming from right why do you wake up every day those questions I think Hanukkah Mm. the first Hanukkah whenever that was 187 BC 170 I don't know the, the years there but you know, it was, it was the Greeks that, that, you know, since the time of Alexander had controlled Palestine and Hellenized everything, and lots and lots of people spoke Greek and the elites were becoming, I mean, they said even in the time of Christ that in Capernaum, they were doing the plays of Aeschylus and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. It was so Hellenized. And, and then Antiochus, whoever it was, he tried to just take it all the way, you know, just completely obliterate the local worship and, and mm. people just what if they hadn't you know rebelled what if they hadn't you know where would the messiah have come from and if you didn't if you had the greeks weren't going to produce the messiah i mean they produced mm. a lot of things but you know so mm. so yeah, there's just such a danger of that that the way that globalization makes us legible everyone spoke greek whatever it was yeah. the English of the day but uh-huh. it doesn't you know where's the where's the where the, where's the local diversity that you know, could potentially spark a new path of of evolution and development that mm-hmm. will save the world. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. It's hard to see what's happening to our world. I mean, you see, mm-hmm. like in something like political correctness, you know, it's like a modern day Inquisition. You know, have you thought? Have you spoken? You know, in a way that offends you know right. the dogma of today, and you must mm-hmm. be burned at the stake and fired from your job and all that. But yeah, the you know, I, I don't know. How do you, it doesn't seem like a human thing. Like it's not a human capacity to make diversity and unity coincide. That has to be um, an act of the Holy spirit. Hmm. Like an, or, or this paradox of how the return of repentance, you know, becoming more childlike is actually the key to your adulthood. It's not just, I'm not saying that a true adult is a baby, but we're saying that a true, a truly mature adult has a certain, has recovered a certain purity Posture. of heart, yeah, purity. Okay. openness of heart or whatever, softness of heart, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so these, all these paradox, these coinciding of opposites don't seem to be merely human achievements, at least for most of human history, mm-hmm. they've thought to be you know, miraculous or faith itself is just a dependence on the spirit anyway. So it's like, it makes sense. And maybe all the gifts we've been given, everything reminds us that, is telling us that we can be self-sufficient, I guess, right? With, with technology, you're, like, we've been going back to technology makes us limitless, right? We can get whatever we want. So all your desires are answered in that way. But then I guess because of all the issues that we have, like we have everything and then we still feel empty. And I guess that's where <laughs> there's something there. Is that? I mean, I, I'm sure people talk about like the, I guess we might say there's the God-shaped hole in their heart right look i, I think th- this is the this has the, been the mistake in apologetics the mistake yeah. has been that we are trying to fit in create an artificial doubt yeah 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 and then provide an artificial certainty right an artificial doubt about your salvation an artificial certainty about its solution but but what but what the, the real question of it of faith is something much more like the chaos or boredom or, or meaninglessness mm-hmm. of your own life mm-hmm. and then Imagine is that. there an, an adventure 
Mm. Is there an adventure that lies ahead of you that is only accessible through faith? Mm. And is there a journey that's possible? And is that, is there, is there something beautiful about that thought or something beautiful that you want to get to through that adventure? And, and this is the issue. People instead are trying to look at, okay, I said the sinner's prayer. Right. Yeah. And now I'm on the, the safe team. And then, you know, and what mm-hmm. I'm safe to do is condemn those who haven't said it. Or whatever, right. but, but no one's inspired by this. Everyone, I mean, I'm, forest, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm momentarily inspired to, In that moment. yeah, I'm terrified. And, and then I'm, I say it. And then uh, there's a certain certainty and peace. But it hasn't launched me in, in any direction. Mm-hmm. I think it could, if the right person was saying, maybe in the right church, the right context. Whatever. But not, it's not guaranteed. But it's not, it's not really intrinsic. Yeah. It's, it's, it really is an intellectual problem, you know, to, right. to kind of, uh, it's an intellectual solution to a problem that Doesn't you have happen. to first create in the person. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 It's not the, the, they, they have the existential problem that's not being answered. No, the, that's that's a whole another thing. Yeah, like yeah. you know, right? I mean, death I think is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, like well, that, or suffering, then suffering, you know, yeah. loneliness, or yeah, your you know your awareness of your own sin, or just getting disgusted with your own, you know, guilt and meaninglessness, and yeah, mm. and so or or you have this adventure that you know, and that pr- produces that produces all these crazy paradoxes like unity and diversity, like mm. freedom and obedience, like, mm. you know, to be, well, to find your fate and your total freedom at the right. same time. Responsibility I mean, and, and having agency, right? Yeah. So these things are, yeah, I like that. Cause it's like, it does come from the, the, the it acknowledges that each person has this maybe, I mean, they're all different wants or desires or, something that they need help with and that they on their own are like seeking something, right? Some desire. And that, that could be a journey to finding something that can, yeah, change how they're looking at life, right? Different perspective or something. Oh yeah. I've been telling people that I was reading about how knowledge or certain knowledge, specifically some kind of insight that you can get about anything can be similar to having a conversion experience. So, which is a very interesting way of thinking about learning. But his point with that was saying that new knowledge is, there's basically just saying that knowledge is a lens to which to view the world. And each piece of thing doesn't have to be an individual data point, but it's like kind of colors how you see life. And so maybe that's, a similar thing. It's like, well, I mean, you can literally have the conversion where it's like, oh, I, I now I know who God is, and then now I can see life and my my life and the universe differently. But just learning something new, right? Discovering something has that similar kind of feeling, potentially. And then someone else said that that also like it's similar to also getting a joke too. Like before, those words that someone said is just a bunch of words. But once you understand that joke, it's like. It means something, right? You and also you can't go back to you can't really you can't be like oh I don't get it. It's like no, you you just get it now, right? You can't not see it that way, which I think is interesting. Do you have a favorite joke? No, I don't have a favorite joke, but I think that's a good analogy. So, well, well, jokes are nice in, in another sense that mm-hmm. they're often humor in general. 
Yeah, like they, they often have that, like a creative resolution mm-hmm. of, of of tension or something. Right, because they give joke. you um, certain expectations and they they don't match what you <laughs> thought, and that's the surprise. So, yeah, yeah, like you're more of a person for having gotten it, you know, like because you can see this multiple. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you my favorite joke? Yeah, it's from 1968. Wow, no, 69. It was, I think, a few months after we put a man on the moon, mm-hmm. and Bob Hope was addressing American troops, maybe in Vietnam or something. And his joke about the moon landing, you know, which mm-hmm. is the space race with right. the Soviet Union and all that, and the whole world wanted to know who would get there first. And they all, apparently they did shoot, you know, they landed on the moon with the robots, or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, he said this. The moon landing proves once and for all to the entire world that our German scientists are smarter than their German scientists. <laughs> <laughs> I like, you know, because it, it kind yeah. of, by making light of, I mean, talk about existential struggle. I mean, the, the, we were threatening to destroy all life on Earth with all these wars, yeah. tens of thousands of, of nuclear warheads that yeah. we each, we each have 20,000 warheads. I mean, you know, it's, it's and it's humbling, you know. These two big powers, powers have these yeah. feet of clay or something. But I think, I mean, there's a reason why the, the late night shows do do the comedy, right? Like you can, you can go to sleep now. You, sort of, <laughs> you you can kind of you sort of it's about handing things over to God or to a force greater than you can your conscious mind can understand. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is has paradoxes and surprises, and okay, that's that's reality. Let's just go to sleep. Be okay. <laughs> Yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, sleep is interesting. Like, that's like a, a, in some sense, a liturgy of helping us depend on God, right? Yes. That I a lot of times don't appreciate, but man, like, we are very vulnerable. We can't do anything. Have no idea what's going on, and just have to just hope that tomorrow will still be there, or the world will still be there. It's an image of death, you know. Yeah. Just, just sort of dying. Just, yeah putting it into into thy hands i commend my spirit <laughs> mm-hmm. and i think in some sense it's funny that that's kind of like a i mean it's like a habit that we have to have like god i guess put that in place for us right for us to have to sleep and you know i think about like phrases like fomo like fear of missing out and it's like well you have to sleep you're gonna miss out something right and and maybe that's why the practice those practices like spiritual practices of like I don't know, silence and or just prayer and, and being alone can be helpful for us because we are too you know, connected or loud or whatever it is. And sleep is always there. What do you, what do you think is it that makes people not, why do people not conceive of faith as an adventure or do they? Hmm. Why, why? That's a good, I mean, in, in contemporary orthodoxy, mm-hmm. You know, you have this concept of, you know, of an elder or someone who, mm. some holy person. And so you're, you're like, oh, that person has a way of looking at the world that is not accessible to someone who hasn't really grown in grown faith. Okay. And so that's an adventure like that. That suggests, there. yeah, a possibility like, oh, that's. Okay. I mean, just from that, I think that would mean that there aren't people in their lives that they look up to that are of faith. 
or they don't know. I mean, there's, that's, there's one, that's one too. And then maybe I also think that maybe in people's minds, faith is the end of a search rather than the beginning. Right. Right. <laughs> right, right. right? And that kind of makes sense to me. I think Yeah. it's like, Oh, I'm certain. And I think maybe the people of faith, like for us, we need to kind of admit that we, there is no certainty and we're on this journey. We are starting on this journey. We're still on this journey. There's no, yeah, there's no like sense of like joy or like anticipation or. I think, I think Bonhoeffer for me mm-hmm. is, 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 you know, is a saint of like, I, I like mm. feeling about what I like about him is the feeling that I will never equal him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right, like, oh, like, oh, that's, you know, I can't say I'm there because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm ne- I will never be there. I mean, that's it. It's just that, that's not ever happening. And I think I, another thing I like about faith is that although Jane Jacobs was not a person of faith, mm-hmm. I, she, feel, I feel that I am not a person of her intellect, let's say. Mm. And that for me, if there's going to be any, any sort of development in my connection to her, it would partly have to come from, you know, I don't know how to put it. I don't even know what I mean, but mm-hmm. somehow I feel if I became a holier person, mm-hmm. I would understand her better. And, and certainly having met her in, in person, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I always felt like, like when I was with her and talking to, with her, or if there were other people in the room asking her questions at her house, I always felt like, Oh, not only is she, or the reason she's smarter than us is because she's, purer or more moral than us mm-hmm. so it, it was never it was never just the intellectual insight there was always a moment of repentance when she would weigh in on something that we wow. all messed up wow. and and the feeling like yeah not only did i not see the answer but there were reasons in my character mm. that blocked me wow. from seeing it i mean that knowing is that personal yeah yeah i mean that's that's yeah. a terrifying kind of thing I mean, you meet someone and you realize how like just different or, or not, I don't want to say like they're hiring, but just like how far apart you are. And you could translate that to holy and to God himself, right? It's like when we finally realize how far we are from God, it's like, and you could say, I mean, you might say like, oh, then you'll run away. But like in this case, it causes us to run toward them, right? That we want to understand them or, or be like them and imitate them, whatever it is, even though we know we can't attain it. So somehow the difference in character, whatever it is, causes us to desire it. And so I funny to go full circle to this question of, you know, genealogy and things mm. like that. Like, I think it's, I think within some qualification, right. It's like, it's like healthy to think about our own ancestors that way. Like, mm. You know, like I feel certainly about my father that I will never equal him like that, that, that it's, I've done, I've made too many mistakes and missed too many opportunities to ever kind of be the man that he is. Hmm. And also I live in a different circumstance. I mean, he, yes. he was born in the depression. I think he was five when the Nazis occupied, occupied his village in Greece. I mean, hmm. that's a whole nother world, right? right? So, so that's, that's just another like gonna, animal, yeah. yeah. So, so I think that's one reason why a person wants to think that, oh, we Palestinians came from 
you know, the Minoan civilization 7,000 years ago. They, they want to have some sense that, I mean, I don't even know where the man picked out that 7,000. Right, right. I'm just saying, just knowing you, that you like, there's some sense that your deep ancestors, you could never equal them. And they're, they are, that memory is like an adventure, yeah, memory, yeah. you know, to, to it, it's, it's the only way to approach them. It's, it's too, it's because too, you can't actually talk to them. No. So, I mean, and I, so I, I don't even know if I mentioned this in the beginning, but I brought this up because I was thinking about family history and how I don't really, I feel like I don't really know any of it, honestly. And also like, it's, it's hard. It's sometimes it's hard to appreciate, you know, what your parents did for you. And it's like, and, and you have family conflict and those kinds of things. And so it's like, when I do hear those stories, it helps me to empathize better. It's like, okay, I understand what you went through. You know, you, yeah, I can still get annoyed at what people say, blah, blah, but, you know, like just getting a better sense of like their lived experience and, and the, the fact that like, you know, maybe if, you know, and then my grandparents, if they're not around, then I can only know about them through my parents, essentially. And then if I don't talk about this, record it, save it, like, I'm, we're never going to get it. And just personally, it'd be good for me to have it, even if it doesn't like, get shared or anything. And yeah, I guess knowing where you come from is, is, is humbling. It's like, a, and yeah, and then we were dependent on them. Like we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them too. So regardless of how they are now. Yeah. And, and what if it turns out that, you know, one of your ancestors was a thief or. Mm -hmm, yeah. Yeah. Well, but. <laughs> You know, they're the reason you're here. Yeah. So yeah. I think that also is humbling because, it, you know, who are we to judge another human being? Mm. And, and we can't judge the people around us, you know. And I mean, who knows? Maybe one of our ancestors, you know, sacked some city and that's right. how they survived. And, you know, that's, those are terrible crimes. But you know, we, all we can do in that case is kind of repent for them. You know, this is... I think, right, I mean, in Christ's genealogy, I don't mm -hmm. know if it's in Matthew or Luke, but, you know, didn't David steal was it Uriah's wife and mm -hmm. the child he had through her was the ancestor of, mm -hmm. of the Messiah, so. Yeah, I mean, and then also just more generally, God uses very weak people and people that don't have morals, like, to eventually lead to Christ. Um, I, I guess that should be an encouragement for us, for any of us that have, because we've all sinned, and to know that that God can use us for, for good, or even use our faults for good. And of course, meaning that doesn't mean we purposely do those things, but for the things that we have done, that we can, that is redeemable, right? Yeah. Isn't that kind of the greatest of the Lutheran paradoxes, you know, that we are, we are, we are to come face to face with us ourselves as sinners? Mm while also seeing ourselves as sanctified loved, or, yeah. and loved and justified and, right. and not to try to resolve the tension either way. And it's not an intellectual thing. No. It really <laughs> is the Holy Spirit thing. It's just like a wrestling. Maybe it goes back to the answers thing. Maybe we always want these like complete answers. And maybe not that the answer is no answer. It's just like we're living through it and somehow being okay with that. Maybe that's a good place to stop then. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at LeftPad or Nyafia or on our website, hopeandsource.com.